Hi, Kifkam. I'm so excited about my live today. I have Dr. Gavami. He's gonna be here soon. One second, I'm trying to. اليوم live مع دكتور أشكان Gavami من أشهر الدكاترة Beverly Hills. واليوم هنتعرف عليه أكثر وهنتعرف أكثر على his procedures. Hi, doctor. Hi, how are you? I thank you so much for being here. It's such an honor to have you on my platform. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I hope that this is going to be informative for all your viewers and they'll answer a lot of their questions. I'm sure it is. Uh, first of all, you're actually one of the number one plastic surgeons in LA. And honestly, it's really been, I've been waiting for this live for quite some time. Um, I know you studied, you. you did your residency in the University of Texas, and that's how you started the, in the beginning. Please let me know, how did you decide you wanted to be a doctor? That's a question I'm sure you get asked a lot. Well, you know, what's interesting is I didn't really just want to be a doctor. I wanted to be kind of a studier and manipulator of anatomy. And I just loved human anatomy since I was a kid. And, you know, I'm Persian. So I remember as a, a kid, my mom, her sisters, her friends, every now and then a cousin come in and basically have a splint on their nose. And it was just, it was a routine <laughs> thing every three to six months to see someone in my house with a splint. So I went with my mom to a very famous surgeon at the time. She had a rhinoplasty with. I went with her at the time to some of her consults at the age of eight or nine. And I was just kind of fascinated by the whole process because it didn't look like my pediatrician's office. It was a whole different setting. He had a gorgeous office with a whole view of Los Angeles. And the way he carried himself was a little more like an artist mixed with a scientist rather than like what I was used to seeing as doctors as my pediatrician. So... And, and I knew that my mom wasn't like ill or sick. wasn't there because she was having a medical issue or she wasn't ill. It was almost like she was visiting a sculptor. It was just, it was a different feel. And I even felt that at the age of eight or nine. That's amazing. Uh, you're someone that's different. You actually spend a lot of time uh, going to conferences worldwide. Um, you've written more than 50 textbooks and you're actually writing your own book at the moment, yes. am I right? Yeah, I've- Talk about uh, that. Well, UT Southwestern, where I trained um, now and back then for sure, was considered the number one plastic surgery residency in the world. It was like for Americans, for law school, it was like Harvard Law School. Um, because it had a really big focus on aesthetics, most residencies in plastic surgery do not teach a lot of cosmetic or aesthetic surgery. Uh, my chairman over at the time was the chief editor of the big white journal in plastic surgery. And the Dallas rhinoplasty course, which started with Jack Gunter, God rest his soul, one of the most famous modern fathers of rhinoplasty, has been going on for almost 40 years. So for about 40 years, Dallas has been kind of the center for aesthetic advancement. And some of the most famous facelift surgeons were there who've written textbooks. So I was used to being in an environment with people who were world experts that were being asked to be invited to lecture and were writing the textbooks to teach people around the world. So very soon after, the minute I finished my residency, I was invited to lecture around the world, um, not just because of the quality of my work, but because of my pedigree with my background. And yeah. the people who trained me, within a few years, I was on expert panels in Qatar and New York and France and Italy and all over the world, right next to them sitting. And then later, I was the chairman of some of these conferences myself. And, and you're so actually it's, the it's VP been a great honor. It's been it's a little different than the usual class surgeon in LA. 
And you're the VP of the Rhinoplasty Society as well in uh, in, uh, in, you, in in California, yes. right? Yes, I'm the I'm the vice president of the Rhinoplasty Society of, uh, in the United States, which is a group of very elite kind of rhinoplasty doctors that focus on a lot of nose jobs. And I'm the vice president of that society. So I'm in charge of a lot of the conferences that we hold for that. And uh, in one or two years, I believe that's how it works. I'll be the president of the uh, society as well. So, but more importantly than that, I really love what I do and passion because very, very difficult and it's become more difficult, in my opinion, kind of job to do because because of social media and a lot of the demands out there and what people see with all the makeup and the filters and everything, what people demand and what people expect has become even more. So if you're not in 2021 delivering high end results, um, that is really, really important. So a lot of the books that like the book I'm writing right now is on basically non-white noses. So it's called multicultural rhinoplasty. So it has Arabi Middle Eastern noses, Asian, African noses, and uh, Hispanic Latino noses in it. Ethnic rhinoplasty. Yeah. I saw uh, pretty much talk yes. about. Yeah, ethnic rhinoplasty, yeah. Yes. Which so actually is very important and nice that you talk about because not every doctor can actually do a nose job for every ethnicity. Let's be honest. Yes, and I, I think, I personally think if you can't do a nose on any ethnicity that comes through your office, you shouldn't really be doing noses because the whole history of nose jobs dates back to 500 BC in India. So, and one of the most famous modern, modern uh, surgeons for rhinoplasty, the father of rhinoplasty, Jack Joseph, who was a Jewish German in pre-Nazi Germany, who was doing aristocrat noses and reconstructing World War I noses that were blown up and everything. So... You know, it has a lot of history and ethnicity and culture. So um, I think if you want to be a rhinoplasty expert, you should be able to handle almost any nose that you see. Okay, doctor, a lot of doctors choose specific things to do, like facelift or the face or the body. You are very famous for breast augmentation, for the S-curve, for rhinoplasty, for fat transfer and the BBL. So you, you're actually doing everything, which is amazing. And everything is actually like the reviews I've been reading about you and everybody talks about you in a very positive way in all these aspects. So how come, how come you, you, you didn't choose a specific thing? Um, you know, I, it's because of my training and my passion. And I think the whole the plastic surgeons throughout history, including Jack Joseph himself, the rhinoplasty modern father, he did breast reduction. So in his 1931 book, he had breast reduction written in there, as well as rhinoplasty. The whole word plastic comes from the Greek plastikos, which means to mold or to shape. And I, because of my training, felt skilled enough right off the bat, because I was training with the facelift experts that write textbooks, the liposuction experts that wrote textbooks, the rhinoplasty gods of the world that were right there in my institution that were holding the conference in Dallas every year. So I'm going to do all of those that I like. There's certain things I don't like too much that I don't do a lot. I don't do lower body lifts. I don't do um, certain things. Um, but for the most, I don't do breast reconstruction after cancer. So it's really cosmetic aesthetic. And I don't really even advertise my fillers and Botox. I do those mostly for patients who know me through my practice and celebrities because I don't have a lot of time to do it myself. So we have nurses do it, but I don't advertise it too much, but I do a lot of fillers and Botox too. But I just like all parts of human anatomy and I feel lucky with my training that I'm able to be skilled at both. And I'm considered an expert in these areas. Unfortunately, it doesn't make you have a lot of friends in the industry because 
you know, I, I get referrals from surgeons when they just don't know what else to do. It's too difficult. They'll send it my way. But I don't have referral basis with people because the ENT facial plastic guys get referrals from body guys that only do body, don't do noses, you know? Yeah, I know what you mean. And because they don't I send... do it. Yeah. So I have very few close friends that are in the industry <laughs> in Los Angeles. That's the only downside. The upside is that when someone comes here, and that's one of the reasons I'm so busy, is when they want a revision rhinoplasty because it's their fourth but they also want bigger breasts, I can do both. And I can do both safely and effectively. So that's one of the reasons why I'd be so fortunate to be so busy is because it's almost like a one-stop shopping. And I do facelifts too, and I have that on YouTube. I do facelifts that are deep plane that I was trained by Fritz Barton and some of my predecessors who are world famous guys that taught me anatomy. So um, once you understand anatomy, you know how to manipulate it safely. And I'm lecturing at all these conferences, I also, I'm able to listen to other people talk. You're exchanging information with experts. Your level of what you deliver keeps raising every year. By the way, I have friends that are texting you. They say they know, they're saying hi. <laughs> oh, hello. Um, uh, another thing I wanted to ask you, uh, regarding, uh, you, you, you're one of the most known doctors that does revision plastic surgery. And a lot of, doc a lot of people don't like to do revision plastic surgery because they find it as a hopeless case or there's no use. Uh, isn't this more of a challenge for you? Because you said that almost 10 to 20% of your practice is actually revision work. Is it true? Well, actually, for my nose practice, about half of it is. Um, oh my and God. For, for BBLs, I do what I call BBL, which I call it, now I call it a basic butt lift because the BBLs are just, everybody's doing them. And they just, from that's been the name they've called it. And the shaping and, and a lot of what's been done, I personally don't like a lot of the results I see. So I convert BBLs to S-curve. So that's about 25% of my S-curve practice. Um, so revisions are difficult. You know, I don't think any surgeon should be taking on a revision, including of his own work, unless you're doing at least 100 to 200 of that surgery per year. And that's a rule Jack Gunter, God rest his soul, taught me. He said, if, he said Ash, if you're not doing at least 100, 150 nose jobs a year, you should not be doing revision nose jobs. So... Um, basically, it is very complex. The most complex thing to actually manage is, is going to be the patient's expectations because it's almost like you've been through three bad relationships and you meet your dream man <laughs> yeah. and the dream man is really the best man for you. You should marry him, but you've been through three bad relationships. So you just cannot even imagine this guy being good for you. So it's the same <laughs> it's thing a lot of baggage. Surgery. Yeah. It's very difficult to manage expectations in some of these patients because they've been through so much. I do my best to sympathize with them and, and tell them all their options. The thing with me is within 30 seconds to 45 seconds, I know when somebody requires what they require and what they need. I spend the rest of my consult talking with them and making them try to understand and we do a second consult if needed. But revision surgery requires more time. I have office staff here that has kind of seen it all. So they take a lot of the questions too post-operatively. It's also important how you manage them. But um, the revision cases are important. A lot of surgeons right now are not even taking them on. So, um, and it, you know, plastic surgery, I kind of relate to like a mechanic who's high level, like a Formula One race car, Lamborghini, Ferrari mechanic can obviously change a tire on a Prius or a Toyota, mm -hmm. right? So yeah. 
Um, that's how I see high-end revision surgery or nose jobs or complex S-curves or facelifts. That's the Ferrari mechanic. That's fixing that little engine, that perfect engine. But, but doing liposuction or doing Botox or fillers is like a Ferrari mechanic changing a tire. If you know how the anatomy works and you can do a facelift and you understand the syringe anatomy too of how to use it, you're going to be able to do fillers with one eye closed, you know? So um, there's different levels of expertise. Once you reach certain expertise, you can, you should be able to handle revisions. So. Um, as you know, you're Persian, of course. So you understand the Middle Eastern body, the, how the women like, you know, in our part of the world, they like more of a full woman. The, like, as you said, the S-curve, the waist. Uh, a lot of people always say that in America, that the, it's very few to find do good doctors that can actually get you that real good shape with the lipo. There are many people that do lipo, but they don't get you that S-curve or that nice waist or like, you know, in South America, that's very known. That's, that's all they do. You're one of the most known doctors that gets you that 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 nice shape which a lot of people no no really really i'm being honest and this is what they say you go to this doctor he gives you a lipo job but there's no shape there's no waste your back is not you know what i mean so tell us how did you master this this thing i mean it's also partly where you're from i think that you're used to this I, type I, of woman yes <laughs> i think i think so you know ever since i would say i was honestly since i was 12 or 13 years old i just <laughs> you know just appreciated the female form i i you know i you know, crushes on girls at that time. I just understood anatomy. At that time, we had certain, you know, supermodels that we looked at, and the aesthetic was more curvy uh, back then. And then it went through a little period where it wasn't curvy, and then it came back to really curvy now. Um, yeah. So I, I don't know if it's my genetics or, you know, growing up with my father, my uncles, and the women around me, but I personally find a, a curvy female silhouette to be the most attractive. That's what separates a man from a woman. So the things that separate um, a born man from a born woman, form-wise, is curves in general. You know, you look at somebody yeah. from the back, they're walking, if they have short hair or their hair is covered and you can't see their hair and their height is not necessarily too short or too tall, you should be able to know within seconds, is that a man or a woman, you know? so. Um, the female silhouette is very specific and the naturalness of it, if it doesn't look surgical, is important. I don't know how I do it. I just kind of envision it and just know where the fat needs to go. And I know where I should liposuction deep. I know where I should liposuction closer to the skin. And I know where I shouldn't liposuction at all. And there's a you, gradient. You don't you know, do liposuction between the thighs, right? You, you do of between course, the thighs? No. No, we, I do, yeah. When I do an S-curve, the usual S-curve involves liposuctioning the back of the arms, the upper shoulder that you can grab this fat here, the yeah, arms, that. that area to me is a unit. It's a C-shaped unit, like a horseshoe. Um, the bra strap, the entire back, lower back to get the dip, and then the flanks, love handles, stomach, inner thighs, sometimes even the knees. Those areas, I liposuction enough to make it get the Looking fat, straight. but not so much where it makes them straight. I preserve thickness in the thighs. You never want to over suction thighs. Okay. And a lot of the Arabi women that come here, um, actually, you know, they've had a lot of children, so they have some loose skin and some of the fat too. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, it's very important to judge what you can leave behind. You know, it's all about what you leave behind, not what you just take. I learned that from my, you know, one of my mentors, Rod Rourke. So 
you, you when you have good liposuction results it's because you understand and you understand in that specific person the snapback elasticity their skin's capable of and in what area it's capable of sticking back if it's not capable of sticking back good in some areas you either don't liposuction it or you do a lot less or you do some radio frequency or vaser or something to help that skin and then you plan if necessary if it's really loose to later do some kind of tummy tuck or cutting surgery where you actually tighten skin and remove skin. But our skin tightening technology has improved a lot. But what do you do about women that have a lot of cellulite from previous liposuction when they come to you again and there's a lot of bumpiness around them? How can you adjust those, that? There are certain areas where it's easier to fix than others. The hardest area to fix that in is the stomach. Because the stomach skin, yes, the stomach skin doesn't have anything to guide it to where to stick. But the love handles and the hips and the side of the thighs has the hip bone to drape around. It's like getting fabric and wrapping it around mm -hmm. the bone versus just hanging a curtain. Stomach is like a curtain. There's nothing for it to yeah. stick to. So if you wear tight jeans or leggings in the same position after lipo and you sit here every day like that, you're going to have a line in that curtain of skin. So how you lipo and what they do afterwards and, and the padding we use and the garments, Every single move matters on the results. So any of those is off, you're going to have bad results. And the most difficult results are to fix. And I've seen the worst. I've seen really bad ones, honestly, come from um, uh, other countries uh, all over the world, is when they go too close to the skin and they're using vaser or laser with it, they burn the underskin. So it has no fat. The skin is this thin and burned, and it's stuck down. Next to it, there's a mound of fat with scar tissue. Those are very difficult to fix. You have to go release that skin, add fat transfer to improve the skin quality and volume, micro lipo next to it, massage all the fat together, and then do some energy-based skin retraction like either InMode or Sinusure, um, uh, Potenza, or some of these devices. Um, you know, Kim, Kim Kardashian actually posted on the Potenza one. It's a great one for superficial issues with the neck and other areas too. So. We have a lot of good technology for it. So if you're a skilled surgeon, you can fix it, but it's never, unfortunately, going to be as good as it could have been the first time. Revision surgery is always, like I said, it's just like if you have bad relationships and you get a good one, you're going to have to go struggle and say, okay, yes, I do trust you. You know, it's going to take some time. <laughs> I like how get... you describe it. It's so cool. Yeah, I mean, surgery is like that. Surgery is a very personal, intimate journey. So you have to um, kind of trust your surgeon. If you go into an expert and you see results that tell you in your mind and your instincts say, you know what, this guy can probably do almost anything or this guy knows what he's doing. Just going to leave it in his hands and, and you should be fine. So I think that um, it's there's certain areas, if you have really bad surgery, you should seek two or three opinions. Go with who you can. Almost everything is fixable but not everything's fixable 100%. I may be able to get someone who had bad lipo in their inner thighs and abdomen and be able to make their abdomen 60% better, their inner thighs 80% better, you know? And, and I actually give patients percentages so they visualize how much improvement, but you know, it's, it's sometimes two surgeries, three surgeries are required and it becomes a very expensive venture. So the most important thing is that the first surgery you have, you go to someone who's an expert okay. And it's a good sign if the person you're going to for your first surgery does a lot of revision surgery too, because we know what to avoid.
We know how to not, we don't want to do revisions on our own patients. So we know what to avoid to not have to do a revision on our own patient. Another question I have regarding breast augmentation uh, and breast uh, lifts. Uh, a lot of people talk about now fat, a lot of like in our part of the world, everybody does saline or silicone. Now everybody's talking about fat, fat, fat. What do you think about uh, injecting fat and what's your favorite preference with, among those three or does it depend on the patient? It definitely depends on the patient and the look they're going for. If someone wants a really firm, busty look and they're a double A cup, very small, fat transfer won't give it to them. Fat will feel different. It's just going to feel like maybe they came in with breast milk and then it's a year after they breastfed. And they'll have that you know, fullness still, but it's not going to be the firmness as much. Mm -hmm. Fat transfer in the breast is definitely safe. I waited five years to the research studies to come out to make sure it's safe before I started doing it. I was doing fat transfer of the face and buttock years before I finally started doing breast ones. And the breast ones I started in 2013 after the research showed doesn't increase cancer risk and they're doing it for cancer reconstruction. So it's definitely safe. Yeah. Um, it's, but the blood supply in the breast and the way the anatomy is structured is not as good as the buttock and gluteal area for having nourishing the fat cells and you do get a little bit more percent loss. So the fat graft survivability in breasts is a little bit lower uh, percents, and I tell patients that. So if somebody's already a B cup and they wanna be a little bit bigger than a C and they don't want to have implants, even small ones, they're just against having something foreign in their body like that, um, fat transfer is a great option. Um, if somebody has nothing but nipples and no breast mound at all, I've done situations where I've done fat grafting to get it thicker, get the volume, then a year later come in and do an implant. Or someone who's had breast implants and they're going bigger or smaller, they're getting a lift or they're just changing implant size. And once you have implants in for five, six, seven years, you get a little thinning of your skin. In those patients, I'll do a replacement of the implant, tightening of the pocket, and I'll layer fat transfer in the cleavage area or next to the implants to have a better transition and thicken yeah. certain areas for them. So it looks more natural the second time around. So fat transfer is a great tool. And it's, it's very common when I go in the operating room that I'm doing fat transfer somewhere. Cause I'm, I'm one of the, um, I'm considered a world expert in it, whatever that means. Um, I've written textbook chapters on it. I teach and present about how to transfer it all over the body the right way and safely, which is very important. So um, people come seeking that out. So they'll say, I want my nose job, by the way, can we do a little fat transfer or something here or get my jawline tighter? Or can we put a little bit in my breast, my breast dogs from five years ago, can we just thicken it while you're doing my nose job? No, you can do that, amazing. Uh, regarding the nose, uh, I, I know you're an expert with nose and honestly, I've been seeing your work, it's impeccable. Like, it, I like how you don't even change it so much. You make it look so natural and Crunch. it fits every face. It doesn't, you know, Thank in you. our part, in our there was a point in the two th early 2000s in, um, in Saudi when a lot of my friends got nose job, they all kind of had that very big dent here. It was all similar. They, like they went to the same doctor and yeah. they all had, and yeah. as they got older, it kind of got thinner and it, they actually look older now and there's something off. So everybody now is trying to find someone that does a good revision. So I always remember bad nose jobs. You know what I mean? Yeah. So what I, what I, what I want to ask you, a lot of people now that don't want to do the surgery again have been recommended to fill the areas. Are you pro filler in the nose or are you someone that is against it because fillers are not like- I do fillers in the nose a lot, actually. I just- But what do you think of them? 
Um, I, you know, I like it for after your rhinoplasty, whether it's from someone else, me, etc. If a certain amount of time has passed, it's a little bit dangerous. You could get some necrosis. You could get vascular compromise. You have to know what you're doing. And there's just a small percentage of that happening. If you're okay with that small 1% risk, it's okay to do. And people who've had multiple revisions, it's riskier. So if somebody isn't in a high risk group and they have little contour areas and the skin is not stuck and scarred down, filler can expand it and get things to be smooth. It's one of the best things for smoothness. I also do it for patients that don't have much of a bridge, whether it's someone who's African-American or Asian or someone who had the scooping out you talked about, yeah. but it doesn't feel like cartilage and bone. So it's not that much more challenging to go ahead and just go under anesthesia have a little bit of ear graft placed in a, in a kind of a burrito or a wrap of fascia and put it into a tunnel and put a surgical permanent solution too. And to okay. me, the ones that have been over scooped that need filling of their bridge, those are the yeah. most simple revisions to do. If that's all they need, that's actually, that's a one hour surgery for me. Oh, that's because amazing. I can take from the ear, wrap that fascia nicely, make a tunnel, and pocket in through the nostril, no opening of the nose, and put the graft molded in place, sutured to the skin, put a cast in a week, they have a bridge again. So, okay. but fillers is a good option for that. And actually the safest place to put fillers is from here to here. The and what about here? What about here? To That's make a little more dangerous. Yeah, it's a little uh, more dangerous. I like to go down here to lift the nose up. If you okay. understand nose anatomy and you're comfortable with fillers like me, Doing fillers in the nose. I've done my own staff here where they don't even need a nose job anymore. You know, you can really. I, I, I really want to do something of the sort, but I'm really worried. So, like, I want to go to the right person. So, well, you got to go to the right person because we will recognize immediately within hours if something is compromised vascular wise and we'll dissolve it right away and do treatments yeah. for it. But, and it's not like you lose your nose and your nose falls off. You basically, it looks like a really bad sunburn and or when you fall on your knee as a kid. Yeah. And you get that little area of skin that looks uh, dry yeah, and yeah. then new skin grows under it's that's the worst that can really happen there but um it's a really good option fillers in the nose it's not my favorite but i'll do it on my own patients too they come back two three years later everything looks just right but they have a small area here as they got a little bit older they lost weight it's showing the bone i filler it we're done in five minutes as opposed mm -hmm. to Unfortunately, here's, here's something important I want to say before I go to surgery. Um, yeah, go ahead. Unfortunately, you know, you don't know the personality of the surgeon you're going to. And, you know, money is a big drive for a lot of surgeons. I've, I truly would still do what I'm doing if it paid a lot less because I love what I do. Um, there's a lot of surgeons, unfortunately, and I've come across them where, you know, they have personal ego issues, they're jealous professionally or they don't know how to do something. They're annoyed that you went out of your country somewhere or they're annoyed that you went down the street, you didn't go to them. And you come in and you have a small little issue that just needs filler or a one hour touch up or a 20 minute touch up in the office where you can be awake to revise it. But they, they go and they make it a big deal and they tell you you need rib graft, you need a five hour surgery, it's gonna be $40,000. They almost make you more angry or they give you certain signals like who did this to you? Like, did you fall off the table? Like, what happened? Like, was he drunk that day or was she drunk? Where, you know, they really make you angry. And to me, run away from an office like that because they're using really desperate measures to grab you in. 
you know, and yeah. they're, they're really motivating. They're motivated by financial because a lot of solutions and no's, even in butter, can be a lot less than you think they, they, they are. And, you know, it's yeah. the worst thing for a physician that's supposed to heal to purposefully hurt a person who's already been hurt by a bad surgery or something they think is very bad to hurt them further, to make them feel so bad that they want to just get so angry and go get that surgeon, ask for their money back, come and pay you double to do something that would have taken 20 minutes in an office to fix, you know? So you all have to be very careful out there too. When you're traveling the world, you're doing these virtual consults, read the body language of your surgeon and try to see what really is behind their motives. Because a lot of times filler could fix it. Doctors should always have ethics, and I always feel that it's something that's built in the job itself. So it's amazing to see that you're like that. And it's, it's actually known. You have a good rep. Another thing I'm going to ask you, for a virtual consultation for any client ab uh, or patient abroad from the Middle East or everywhere, uh, how does that process work? Can you just give us a brief on that? Sure. Um, yeah, virtual consults is a really good speedy way, especially in the era of COVID. I have people that do virtual that are, you know, 10 miles away. But... If you're, you know, in, in Saudi or Qatar or Dubai or in France or Italy yeah. um, or England, I get a lot of patients from England for some reason. Um, virtual consults is a good way to speed up the process because when you call or contact me and they tell you his next surgical consult in, in person is in 2022 October, that doesn't mean, oh my God, forget it, I'm going to go somewhere else. You can ask, so when would his next virtual consult be? And that we can get you in sooner. Once you have your consult, whether it's virtual or in person, when you get scheduled for surgery is very quick. It can be sometimes within a month, two months, because we may have an opening and you're going to be at the top of the list where we call you and say, we have something open, come on in. So, And also, if you're doing a virtual consult with an expert like me or other experts in the world, you're at least getting information. Even if you don't go and see that surgeon for surgery, you're getting information from them. So that if you go somewhere where the surgeon's not as good and they're desperate to make money and they tell you things that don't sound right, your brain will say, mm, okay, I, that's not what Dr. Vami said. That doesn't make sense. I don't know if I want to do that. And you maybe will wait a year or you will wait longer. So it's a good way to just get information. Lawyers yeah. do this all the time. Lawyers charge $500, $2,000 just to talk to you and review your case to see if they even want to take your case on, you know? And people pay because they want to know, am I, am I able to do this? Can I sue this person? Or am, do I have a case here at all? And they get information. Information is power, knowledge is power. So even if you don't schedule the surgery, a virtual consult, I think is worth it. Okay. I've done Another virtual consults for my hair and I haven't <laughs> went through with those people. Amazing. I'm going to ask you this question because I'm actually pregnant. So I'm wondering, I'm delivering in two weeks. For example, if I want oh, to come in. Congrats. Thank you. Uh, so I was wondering if I want to come in, for example, to do the S-curve. And do, how long would you, uh, you think for a woman that after delivery, should she come to you? Six months, five months? Can you give me an estimate? There's, uh, there's no rule. You want to wait at least two to three months for your immunity and your body to get back to normal, your uterus to shrink. But as far as when you can do breast surgery, body surgery, I usually tell people to wait until they're done breastfeeding. If you're doing okay. breast surgery specifically, you have to wait at least two or three months, sometimes longer, till your breast milk is dry. You can't have okay. fresh breast milk coming through the nipples, you know, 
Um, I'm doing so. Yeah, so you have to have wait for that dryness for you to go back to almost normal. And be, but besides, we can judge where you're at better. We can see how deflated you are. You might need a lift when you're deflated. So, but as far as nose and buttock and other parts of the body, as long as three months have passed and your, um, you know, your immunity and your uterus is shrunk and you feel like your hormone levels are back to normal, it's safe. What about weight? Uh, do you like you? You want to have a certain weight to do a certain uh, like life? Oh, I like doesn't... people to. <laughs> yes, I like people to come in um, heavier because most people do want to do some kind of fat transfer and fat oh, is okay. precious liquid gold. To me, it's clay. It's like giving <laughs> Michelangelo more clay, more marble. It's you know, if you give Rodin oh, really? more bronze, he's going to do a better sculpture. So those are okay. you know, I tell pregnant women especially. Do a virtual or come in as soon as you can after so I see where the weight is so we can design and, and architect your frame and what we're going to do. Okay, amazing. That's really interesting because everybody kept on telling you six months, eight months. I love that you told uh, me this. Six months is a general safe rule, but that's because you were thinking, they're probably thinking breast. Yeah. But if you're not breastfeeding and three months have passed, your uterus is shrunk, you feel strong, your hormones are, are okay, you can get a nose job, you know? Yeah, of course. But thank you so much. I know you have a surgery. I would love yep. to have more time with you, but I can't wait to meet you in LA personally. I'm just waiting for my visa. I'm, gonna, I'm oh. applying. I'm applying Inshallah, now. You get it soon. Hopefully we'll get it. And um, thank you really so much for your time. And you don't understand how much uh, messages I'm getting right now on my WhatsApp. Oh, great, great. So yes, I'm going to call my office or email. I'm going to give your assistant's WhatsApp and put it on Instagram because uh, a lot of people don't really like email in our part of the world. They prefer... WhatsApp is great. We like WhatsApp. <laughs> great. Thank okay. you so much. Shukran, shukran. Thank you so Afwan. much. Bye. Take care. Bye. Nice meeting you. Bye. You too.